Hello everyone, it's the Wine Hour, the talk show that removes your wine anxiety and this is the last time for 2022, so a warm welcome to all of you and we're starting with Just Like Heaven by The Cure and as usual, most of the show's music has been selected by our special guest and will be available as a playlist on Spotify. The year end. A time to take a look at the past 12 months and what a year it was. A humbling year, a year I'm grateful for. Now, it may sound strange in view of what is happening in our world. The war in Ukraine, the repeated mass shootings in the US, the failings of COP27, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the freedom fight of people in Iran, the fires, the droughts, the floods, and so many more events. And at the same time, we have started to see even further in space through the Webb telescope make us really feel small. We finally went out, meet each other, traveling, eating, and drinking together. And then there are the people, the guests that came on the Wine Hour and also on the one-on-one podcast. It's been a privilege to listen and share their stories with our audience, the causes they are fighting for to make our world a better one, the climate, the environment, equality, diversity, inclusion, the fight to preserve lands from big agribusinesses, to preserve cultures, to rekindle ourselves with humanity. It's also been a privilege to continue the Wine Hour with a wonderful team, Jamie Orajo, Tanisha Townsend, Ray Isle, and Akos Fortek, can't make it today, is uh, tasting some Chateau Latour, Chateau Bella. Anyway, we'll come back to that afterwards. And to have a supporting audience coming back each time to listen. So the journey has made a lot of ups and downs, uh, doubts and certainties, but it is one I would not change for a minute. Thank you so much. Years from now, I want you years from now, and I'll hold you years from now, as I love you tonight. Years from now, Dr. Hook. So here's the menu of today's show. First in Uncork, Jamie and Ray and Jane will be discussing how to get the best wine holiday season and their predictions for 2023. Then in License to Taste, Tanisha will make us dream with her trip between Alba and Asti in Italy. There's something special about that. And in the Wine Minute, she will tell you everything about her last year's resolutions and if anything happened this year regarding to this. And finally, in Have a Drink With Me, I have the pleasure to welcome our special guest, Jane Anson. Now, before we start, let me introduce you to today's cast. And you will notice there's a bit of a Fleetwood Mac theme uh, with the songs written by Kristen McVie, who unfortunately passed away a couple of days ago. So here it is. You can take me to paradise And then again you can be cold as I over my head, so Fleetwood Mac from their album title, Fleetwood Mac, coming from the magnificent city of Bordeaux, aka the center of the world of wine. Sorry, Napa. Uh, it's a marvelous honor, <laughs> privilege, and pleasure to welcome our special guest, Jane Anson. <laughs> oh, nice. I like the <laughs> I like the applause. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. And now. Yes, they are cool, calm, and collected. It's a wine dream theme. So this is on Isn't It Midnight from also Fleetwood Mac from Tango the Night. So it's the moment you all have been waiting for. Uh, they make wine interesting, controversial, and even funny. 
coming from our global virtual studio, the one and only Wine Dream Team. And today we'll be starting from Europe and then we'll move across the Atlantic. Don't stop from the album Rumors. So from Paris, Alicia Townsend. Hi, good evening, Tanisha. Good evening. Great to see you. It's great to be seen. Thank you. <laughs> and now across the Atlantic. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Oh, yeah, little lies from the uh, Tango in the Night album from New York City, Mr. Ray Isle. <laughs> good afternoon, Ray. Good to be back, I should say. Yeah, so great to see you. You've yeah. been traveling so much. It's, are you excited about the traveling? Or um, I actually I reached a saturation point on travel. Um, I'm very happily not going anywhere until the middle of January at this point. Um, I I missed travel during the pandemic, and then I started up traveling again and started traveling <laughs> crazy. And I was like, wait a minute, I think I want to do this actually. <laughs> so you know, never pleased, I guess. Yes, um, and last but not least. Everywhere, from uh, also the Tango the Night album. She's everywhere, actually. She's going to be here now. And then at the Latin X, uh, there's a there's a panel happening uh, today. So you're from St. Lina, uh, Jamie Orao. Hello, hello. Good to see you. How are you? Very well. Very well, very well. Yes, the Latinx Wine Summit is happening uh, here in Napa today. So um, I'm going to do this and then scoot down there to catch the tail end. Um, and Tuanwa is actually pouring at the Gran Cata, the big tasting at the end. So oh, nice. very excited. Nice, yeah. nice, nice. So everyone is ready. Uh, so grab a glass of wine, of water, of chai, of tea, of anything, whatever it is, coffee, we, we're, we're fine with everything. Um, having a wonderful show, um, have a drink. Cheers to all and uh, enjoy the show. Cheers. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the eighth wonder of the world. The flow of the century, always timeless. Ho! Thanks for coming out tonight. But you're here with me. Yeah, you chose to be here with us. Thank you so much, <laughs> Jay-Z Izo. <laughs> so today's on court is about how to get the best of the wine holiday season and your uh, prediction for 2023. Who wants to start? Okay. Ooh, well, I just got excited because I started thinking <laughs> about all the delicious things that I want to drink over the holidays. So... <laughs> Okay, now before before you 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 share that, I'm just going to launch a quick poll, and uh, we'll get the answers later on. So, what exciting things are you looking for to drink in the holiday season? Well, um, I just got um, a fabulous new spot uh, here. They're a retailer, but they kind of work out of a warehouse, so their prices are absolutely incredible. It's a good little insider tip if anybody um, wants to DM me for the insider Napa tip. Um, but um, <laughs> we 
they do amazing grower champagne, which is great. They do incredible cru um, Beaujolais, which is one of my faves. Um, and I'm very excited about a lot of the um, new Chardonnays coming out of California, in fact. Um, I mean, yes, of course, I make one, but um, there are actually a lot of really beautiful um balanced mineral driven um pretty 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 chardonnays um and i think they can be really versatile wines that um have been kind of underestimated and underrepresented because they haven't been in balance um but i think when they are there they're delicious so yeah, that's what's going to be on my table okay right um, similar feeling about Chardonnay, uh, though I was in Oregon for IPNC this past summer and the same similar situation in Oregon, there's just some beautiful wines coming out of, out of Oregon uh, Chardonnay wise. Um, Walter Scott is one that I was, uh, had sort of fallen in love with. I think they make gorgeous wines, um, very and slightly reductive in style that sort of flinty, somewhere between flinty and matchstick note. Um, but but gorgeously balanced and then i know it, i agree this has been this shift away from the the big galumphing lots of oak lots of ml lots of butter lots of everything chardonnay style which is nice um I'll, i'm going to be I inevitably drinking champagne of some kind um throughout the holiday season it it, it seems to demand it and then it fun funnily enough i i i came across several bottles of Amarone that I forgot I had. And Amarone is kind of not in a fashionable mode at the moment, but, um, but, you know, in the right weather and the right kind of food, it's, it's, it's a stellar wine and, and, you know, you have to put up with a little bit of high alcohol just from the nature of the winemaking process, but on a winter night with a, something like, you know, leg of lamb, it's pretty great. Oh, nice. Jane, what about uh, European based? What about Bordeaux? Um, yeah, over the holidays, I don't really mind what it is I'm drinking, but I like it to be out of a magnum because it's really festive. <laughs> everybody likes it. It's great to open a magnum. Nice one. Every, yeah, everybody feels like they're, that they're festive when you get a magnum out. Um, and I guess in terms of vintages in Bordeaux, I've tasted quite a bit of 2005s this year. They took such a long time to come around and now they're delicious. And I would say my big tip would be Pomerol 2005. Pretty much can't go wrong. Wow, two thousands finally come around as well. Yeah, they have as well. These ones, that eventually, <laughs> if you're patient enough, they all come around in the end. <laughs> those were those were those were locked up tight for a long time. <laughs> so, so besides Ray, there's no champagne. Oh, well, I think obviously no. I said grow champagne. Not saying no to champagne. Yeah. Oh, okay. Absolutely. It's it's yeah. the season. So how do you how do you manage? Uh, because it's it's there's more drinking because there's more occasions to drink during the the, the holiday seasons. How do you manage the pace <laughs> to keep on going until New Year's and, and not to pass out before that? I just dilute all the wines I drink 50-50 with water, and that solves the problem right there. Particularly if it's Amarone. <laughs> <laughs> two glasses of water for one glass of wine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I find I mean, maybe because I write about wine, I'm I'm I don't find that I drink that much more during the holidays than I do, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing than I do on a regular basis. <laughs> Maybe that says more about your year than your holidays. <laughs> That's come out quite right. But um, yeah, it's I, part I, of the I, training. I find, that, I find it's more that the, the, it's what I burn out on more is the, is the, is the, the social stuff just like in the, there's it's lots of holiday lunches and holiday parties and holiday this and holiday that. And, and you get a little worn out by the, by the um 
I find myself agreeing to more things than I ought to agree to. So it doesn't affect the drinking so much as just the general um, brain capacity to, to, to provide chit chat and so on. Oh, I don't know. I, well, one of the world's original extroverts. So it's <laughs> like, this is my time of year. Oh, I love it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. No, I need to I bring think, you with I, me. I That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can be your emotional support extrovert. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things that all year round, you need to listen to your body. You need to, to know, um, you know, when to slow down, give yourself a little time, when to have a little water, when to do those things. And I think that um, <laughs> not necessarily because we're drinking all that much more during the year, but I think because of the nature of our jobs, we are in contact with alcohol a lot more than other people. So I think we dose things kind of naturally or, or more regularly. And so it's not like, you know, it's, it's always funny to me when I get to the airport, this is a United States thing that really blew my mind when I first came back here. Um, and it's like 7am in the airport and people are drinking like ridiculous amounts of alcohol because they're on vacation. And it's like, Okay. Like <laughs> cocktail, that, cocktails that like cocktails that, at 7 a.m. It's crazy. That happens it's in UK wild. airports as well. I think that's it. Okay. It's the jet lag for them. It's still the evening. That's why they're No, drinking. it's not. They're coming from here going somewhere. Yeah, but it's, it's like this whole thing of like, I have to be like in abstinence. And then the minute I get a break, I just go crazy. Um, I think maybe, you know, we're just a little more measured all through the year. Yeah, I do. I do find, I agree that people in the business tend to know their, maybe know how their body reacts to alcohol more, I mean, professionally, I guess, in a sense, than people, my relatives out of the business, for instance, who, who, you know, as, as someone in the wine business, I have a pretty good sense of what a glass of wine or two glasses of wine or three glasses of wine will do to me. And that's not necessarily true for people who don't actually deal with wine all the time. Um, mm -hmm. um, well, and I think people outside the industry see it much more as a, a treat or a special thing or, a, you know, and, and yes, there's a festive nature to a lot of these things for us as well. But I think there isn't the same zero to 70 um, because we're all kind of always at 35. So. <laughs> I mean, maybe my problem with traveling was that I was drinking cocktails at 7 a.m. on every flight. I don't know. <laughs> well, so that was see, you Ray? at the airport. <laughs> but there it is. Go. I, you were I, the one with those screwdrivers at 7 yeah. Jesus. It's so strange yeah. to walk by the bar in the airport at like, you know, and you look in and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> where, buddy? Where are you going? And can I make sure I'm not going the same place? They're yeah. all going to Mallorca. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Jane, any any special things happening in Bordeaux during the festive seasons that you know, like the must go to or the tradition? Well, or I'm I'm a little sad. This time last year, I had tickets to go to New York, and I bought tickets to see the Rockettes and do the whole classic, classic New York Christmas. And then Omicron came along and I wasn't able to go. So okay. that was really a shame. Um, this year, I'll be going to Copenhagen in, in 10 days time where they have beautiful Christmas markets. And that really Europe, Northern European, when it just feels so Christmassy. Here in Bordeaux, we have a Christmas market as well, which has just opened this weekend. Um, and, you know, there's the opera. They, they always have nice festive um, festive things. But no, personally for me, I think it's more Christmassy in Paris. I'll always go up to Paris and go mm. and see a Christmas musical or, you know, do do something really festive up there. 
Ah, Noël à Paris, with all the lights <laughs> and everything. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> okay, so I'm sure you're going to be enjoying those those holiday those holiday seasons, parties, and wine. Now to the next uh, topic about your prediction for 2023. Okay, it could be in the world of wine. It could be beyond that. Your choice. Uh, who wants to start? Okay, well, I'm going to go with world of wine. What I think will continue to grow next year, mm-hmm. and I'm it's got to be alternative packaging. There's going to be continued growth, I hope anyway, away from really heavy glass bottles, partly because that's such a big subject right now, also because more and more trouble of getting because of supply chains and because of um, the war in Ukraine, notably, and these things, you know, getting glass and getting enough glass bottles. So I think those two things will combine the idea of greener, more environmentally friendly packaging and the fact that anyway, it's going to be tough for estates to get those big, heavy glass bottles. So hopefully those two things will coincide. And this time next year, we'll have really seen a move towards even luxury wines being packaged in a more sustainable way. Well, I mean, I, I certainly, all the stuff that we're doing here and, um, you know, we're trying to take it a step further um, and using recycled bottles and things like that too. Um, which is going to be yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Conscious Containers, the company we're working with, uh, mm-hmm. Karen uh, McNamara, and um, it's a it's a brand new project. We're part of the beta test, but so that's happening really- here as well. And it's, it's really so it's so cool. There's a woman as well who has started the company here in Bordeaux, and they've literally just they had trouble getting the machines up and running properly, but they just started about three weeks ago. And same thing, collecting it, it's got to be the standard Bordeaux bottle size, but they mm-hmm. get them in, sterilize them, and then put, put them back out to the industry. Yep. Yeah. Well, the thing she realized here too, is that um, because everybody always uh, does, you know, 1%, 1 1.5% more than they probably need just so that they don't run out of glass on the bottling line. So there are all these um, end of runs for some of the bigger companies. Um, I think it's it's 40 million bottles in California. Mm. Wow. It's (laughs) insane. I mean, it's, it's a crazy number. I can't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but um. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. And so for smaller wineries, you know, if we're doing a run of 300 cases, um, you know, it very well might be, you know, one mold that they can use just from that. But um, California also voted a couple of years ago. Um, it's coming in in the next three years to um, or two years now, I guess, <laughs> uh, to have mandatory recycling for uh, wine bottles. So there will be, you know, the little you know, five cents a bottle redeem thing on the back. Um, and so we'll be collecting. The thing that I find really interesting, and this is maybe a topic for another time, but um, I'm really fascinated by the concept of not, what if we didn't care if all the same wine is in the same bottle? Mm. What if, you know, you just got a mixed case of glass while well, the wine was the same. It's all 750 mils. It's all got the same label. Um, and so you actually have different, you could have different bottles, different sizes and colors and whatever, um, but all the same wine. I know it's like. There, there, was, a, there was a headline in the um, the Monde or the Figaro, one of the big papers here in France this week saying that the kind of coolest Christmas present this year are recycled toys and I thought that's really interesting like that's something you never would ever have thought would be a headline in a major paper but just showing this kind of tipping point of people accepting 
that maybe the trade-off of as finding more environmentally sustainable ways of living are having to move away from kind of conscious consumption in the same way. Yeah, Who knows? All, I'm sure we're a long way away, but, but yeah, there's not this idea of upcycling and recycling and, and mm-hmm. finding new life for the for the for the products that you buy and that you don't use for a long time. This is something that is that has been caught up, you know, catching up in 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 Europe a lot. And I think because they've seen consumerism being going too far somehow. Do you see that in the US as well or not yet? Consumers, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand. About oh, upcycling and, you know. Uh, oh, you uh, certainly see it. I mean, and, and there's a lot of stuff in the food world as well, where there's there's a lot of efforts to to utilize, you know, ugly food, basically food that's 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 perfectly palatable but but you know not pristine looking and instead of dumping it which is what grocery stores might normally do to you know find some way to to feed people with it um there's a there's a lot of thought about um you know upcycling food waste you see it both in in food context and you also see it in in beer context where you know people are using spent um spent grains to to feed livestock and stuff like that it's a um it is it's a i think that there's a lot going on with it both in and out of the um wine world and i i definitely think there's also more which is very important for wine at least there's much more consumer interest in it than there was 10 years ago let's say which 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 pushes people in the business who are making wine to to follow through on these things that's you know you don't you know the, the arms race of giant bottles or giant glass you know is 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 going to end i think one because it's silly but two because consumers are more interested in the carbon footprint of 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 what they buy i did i mean last night i handed a bottle and it was a it was a to to, to not to be named napa producer um but it was from 20 <laughs> It was 2010 or 2009 vintage, and I handed it to a guy who's not in the business. And and it, I mean, he 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 got the bottle from me. He's like, "What the hell? This is this weighs like 10 pounds." And I said, <laughs> "I mean, it does weigh, you know, with the wine in it. It is, you know, probably a five pound bottle." And it's, I now when I do wine one on one seminars, I I try to bring um a you know, the range is anywhere from about 11 ounces or 12 ounces to two and a half pounds for, for glass. Um, and I, I'd bring empty bottles just to show people, uh, you know, they're always kind of, their minds are kind of blown when they see that they can't quite believe that it holds the same amount of wine. They pick it up and they're like, this is nuts. This is, you know, one of these ways two and a half times as much as the other. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, I do think that's, a, uh, if we're looking at 2023 trends and ongoing, the, the consumer interest in in all aspects of, of, or of buying in a way that is environmentally conscious is, is a growth thing for sure. Um, people are more and more aware of how their dollars go towards the environment um, or not. And it, and, it, and it skews, if you look at the stats, it skews higher and higher the younger you go in the audience too. Um, it, it's you go down towards millennials. There's much more concern about that than there is in the in the baby boomer generation and so on. Um, yeah. Though it's growing in all. Um, I think one trend that's unrelated to that that I'm very curious about will be if in, wine has been interesting in the context of inflation, um, in that a lot of goods prices have gone up because of inflation in the U.S. at least, and wine has been wine prices have been fairly stable because people have been keeping their 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 market position by by basically you know absorbing the cost of of the of the inflation and that that can only go on for so long so i'm curious if if inflation keeps at the same pace whether we'll see a, a 
jump in, particularly in affordable wine prices. But I don't, I don't know yet. Um, if I knew the answer, then then other people would be asking me to talk about it on other shows too. <laughs> but I don't, so, <laughs> so I just babble to you guys. <laughs> so basically, it is something about you know packages to be more environmentally friendly, to use less glass because of some uh, supply chain issues, but also because you know in terms of the carbon footprint for transportation and everything else, there's a there's an impact on that. So environment, uh, some economics uh, issues about inflation. Uh, what about taste? Is there are we going to see an evolution in in the way people are going to approach wine, the kind of wines they want? Jamie, you showed me last time a, a wine about you know vegan free and you know good for vegan well, zero I, calorie I actually, you know, whatever honestly, these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, but is I, that but a I trend that? that... Um, I think it goes along with what Ray was saying about younger consumers wanting to know where their money's going, wanting to know what's in what they're drinking, and. Um, what, you know, whether it's the glass, whether it go, is what's going into the bottle. We've talked about this before and, and, you know, our industry has been consistently terrible about actually, um, you know, nutritional labeling and, and just saying what's in the bottle and what's not in the bottle. And, and actually we've done ourselves a disservice, quite honestly, um, I think, because, what we've done is opened up a space for people to state the absolute obvious as right. far as the wine is concerned, but actually make it like some sort of amazing, you know, marketing miracle. Um, and so this, this wine is basically, you know, it's, it's saying, you know, it's, oh, it's only, you know, it's zero point. It's, it's fermented dry. And it's like, Duh. Um, But they're using it as a big marketing play. And and we don't talk about the fact that we're fermented dry. Of course we are. Um, We make dry wines, but it's, it's very, I think those sorts of transparency and, and um, bits of information are going to be more and more important um, just as talking about our packaging, just as talking about um, what we're doing um, toward you know, as far as our people are concerned, as far as the environment's concerned, all of those things. I think people are, are because there isn't a natural um, knee-jerk need for wine in younger generations the way there may have been for, you know, status or, or other social reasons in generations past. Um, I think that we're going to have to prove ourselves and we're going to have to actually explain why we have a place and a wonderful, very amazingly solid place in people's lives and on people's tables. Um, But it's up to us to actually explain that because, you know, just saying, of course you want to drink wine. It's so fabulous is probably not going to get it done anymore. (laughs) I think there's a really interesting question here from Beth saying, is there a move towards lower alcohol wines? And I don't know what you guys think, but I think it's almost too, it's almost becoming two separate categories like there is obviously a huge growth in no and low alcohol all kinds of drinks and that is massive and growing and there's much more sober curious as they say and all that kind of thing is definitely happening I don't know if you saw this week in France they just announced that something crazy like 40% less red wine is being drunk by adults in France now than it was in 2011 like just in the last 10 years the drop has been 
significant. But in terms of the actual alcohol content in normal wines that we tend to generally drink, I don't think we have yet seen any re realistic drop in, in the alcohol contents of, of Nappers or, or big Bordeaux or those kind of things. I think there really are, it's kind of like two categories. I mean, I don't think you'll see, uh, I mean, as long as you've got some kind of warming trend around the globe, you're exactly. not going to see lower alcohol levels in, in, in most wines that are at least not adjusted in some way. I, I completely agree. There's a, there's a huge, I mean, I get pitched so many in a products every single day. It's just mind blowing, right? In non-alcohol beer, non-alcohol spirits, non-alcohol mixers, non-alcohol um, wine. The, the problem is that most of the non-alcohol wine is pretty bleak. Um, the spirit, the spirit side of things has done a much better job just in terms of flavor and so on. And it's, it's partly because the fermentation process is part of what makes wine so good um it's uh it, it's it's interesting i i completely I, I do think it's two separate worlds and but i i also think that there is a movement away from um and i'm not sure it's exactly tied to alcohol but there is a movement towards lighter styles of wine towards less sort of towards away from amarone which i was just talking about you know, or, or, or big, you know big substantial cabernets towards lighter more chillable reds towards yeah, you're right uh, and that idea about indigenous grapes and finding all of yeah. the, like like one of the wines that i'm totally obsessed with at the moment uh like a sicilian like etna that kind of thing those unbelievably mm -hmm. beautiful alcohols i mean sorry about wines which tend to be slightly fresher lower alcohols and and you're right. you're definitely right there is a move to that yeah, so and I will say just preaching for the little Napa parish, um, as is my job. Um, I no, I, I do think that there is a generation of consumers and winemakers who are very interested in um, coming back from that, you know, whether it's the big buttery massive Chardonnay or whether it's the big jammy Cabernet, um, you know, there are a lot of us who are actually, and funnily enough, I mean, slight warming trends are actually working in our favor to an extent. I mean, I don't think it'll last forever. Um, but there is a sense in which, because we do have a really beautiful year, most of the time touching wood, um, we can, you know, bring in our Chardonnay at the end of August and it's gorgeous and it's perfectly ripe and it's beautiful. And we're at 12, 13% alcohol. Yeah. Um, you know, our reds get to phenolic maturity when they are actually at lower alcohols. Um, and it was, it's actually, it was really interesting this year because we had this big heat spike and then we had this mm. massive dump of cold rain. <laughs> and people lost their damn minds. And um, but a lot of us ended up with wines that taste gorgeous. And they're, you know, I think our Cabernet is going to come at like 12.1, mm. which is wild. Wow. But it's like, it, but it, it tastes wild. good. So yep. who cares? Well, that's, I, I mean, a lot of the old Napa Cabernets from the, the people were getting into from, you know, the 70s and so on are, are 12, 7, 12, 8. Mm -hmm. there. It's a, yeah. Um, yeah, I was saying that I was tasting 2020. I was saying to you guys before, I've been tasting 2020 Bordeaux in bottle this week. And that's actually a great vintage for that. We've had 2018 where everything was really high alcohol, like 14.5. And then 2020 was back to a much more classic, still delicious and concentrated, but they're all 12.5, 13, 13.5. So, yeah. so yeah, it's still possible, definitely. Before we before we go to the thumbs up and thumbs down, two two things quickly. First of all, the result of the poll about what is your preferred wine for the holiday season. So red, white, champagne, kind of, and the rest is uh, um, uh, yeah, everything, everything, thirty percent, <laughs> everything, thirty percent. Uh, 
before yeah before going to the uh, to to the the thumbs up and thumbs down i've heard that in saint emilion if you were not biodynamic or organic in some way shape or form or you had like some sustainable approach you couldn't get the saint emilion appellation is that true well so every wine region in france basically at a national level they have said by 2032 i think you have to have some form of and it really it's a very wide a green mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be certified biodynamic mm -hmm. organic you have to be doing some something that is minimizing your use of anything that's that's harmful to the environment so you might you know th there's a whole range of things you have to be certified with but what um santamillion did that was super smart was they got ahead of it mm -hmm. and so i think they have said you have to do it by 2026 or something it's earlier and also they did a very good job of talking about it before other appellations began kind of discussing it so yes it's definitely happening um but it isn't just Santamillion. that is a france-wide thing okay so to be uh to be looked uh after so your thumbs up and thumbs down jamie um well my thumbs down is that i missed the beginning of the latinx um, wine summit and i've been hip deep in inventory for two days which is never my fun and favorite thing to do um thumbs up the united states actually voted to um legalize um same-sex marriage which i thought was really kind of wonderful or congress kind of got it on its way um and that was very exciting uh and um my company is going to be i'm going to i take everybody off on retreat in two weeks time and then we have our we love you leave when everybody goes off for two weeks and we don't see each other again until january so um it's the yes Daniel in droite, but uh, Daniel yeah. in droite, yes ray <laughs> thumbs up and thumbs down uh let's see well um thumbs down i mean uh, you know there there are major world things like ukraine that still are are overwhelmingly bleak and disheartening and you kind of hope that there'll be some resolution and you don't see one um personally personally thankfully i don't have a lot of thumbs down at the moment um and thumbs up i mean even though i was talking about a, a, the the you know lots of socializing during the holidays being somewhat um uh exhausting i do have a, a number of things coming up with friends that i don't always see through the year that um you know there is a kind of a, a i'm not sure what it is a, a end of year you know coming together with not necessarily all the people you always see people are like, well, why don't we have lunch you haven't, you haven't had a lunch in a mm, while and so nice. that that kind of um particularly within the wine business that that kind of sense of the broader community um uh, you know getting together is really appealing um and so um i'm looking forward to that in new york new york during christmas time is one of new york's best times um so i'm you know, there are times when I, I mean, like every New Yorker, there are times when I just cannot stand the city and there are times when I love it to death. And and Christmas is usually on the love it side. It's oh, it's wow. a, it's a good time here. To um, be enjoyed. Jane, yeah. any thumbs up and thumbs down? Okay, I, I hadn't prepared anything for yeah, this. Yeah, I know. I just going to very quickly think. Um, okay, so for me, thumbs down that the new series of Succession is not here yet. I think we've got to wait another God knows how long. They haven't announced it. That's a definite <laughs> thumbs down for me. And I don't know, thumbs up, but it's December the 1st. I love this season. I, I just, Christmas Day is fine, but I love the build-up to Christmas. So these next couple of weeks are always the most exciting part of, of my year. So I'm always happy on December the 1st. 
Okay, great. Thank you very much, Jamie and Ray. Thank you. We'll see you in 2023. Uh, enjoy the holiday seasons and, and all the things that go with it to be able to disconnect a little bit. Uh, now, before we go on to License to Taste, here's a short musical break. Uh, so if you need a refill, now is the time. selection uh, our special guest uh, Jane Anson chose uh, Blue Monday by New Order uh, so now we're in on to license to taste with Tanisha Townsend I'm gonna pop some tags only got $20 in my pocket I'm, I'm hunting, looking for a drummer. this is fucking awesome now walk into the club like what up I got a big cock Rifchoft, Macklemore, and Ryan Willis. Uh, good evening, Tanisha. So you're going to talk to us about your wonderful trip between Alba and Asti in Italy. Good evening. Now, bear with me. My internet connection is a little shaky. So it's so, okay. You're, you're in Paris. It's normal. <laughs> Agreed. 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 All right. So... I was in Alba for a conference and we took a train to Asti. So I just want to talk about some of the wines of Alba and Asti, some of which I tasted during the time. So Alba is in Piemont and uh, 
It's one of the newest Italian DOCs. It was introduced only in August 2010, so not that long ago. Located in Northwest Italy and sits at the foot of the Western Alps, it's a very unique spot geographically because it lends some key features that influence the climate of the region, the cool Alps and then the balmy Mediterranean. So these features together give wide day and night temperature variation. And we all know that cold nights and the little fog in the morning and a sunlit day make a very good wine. So Alba the DOC takes its name from the town in the center, Alba. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the two key wine towns in Piedmont. The other is Asti. I'll get to that one in a minute. But it covers more than just the Alba commune. It actually extends in all four directions to take in the area for all the local DOCs. Why does this matter? Why is this important? It gives winemakers the freedom to make wines with blended with grapes from several different zones. They can cover a much broader range of wine styles than being a more specific DOC. So instead of being limited to a single grape variety, wine sold under the Alba title can be made from anywhere between 1 to 15 grapes. Mm. So I think that's kind of cool. couple of things I drank while in Alba. Mm. Of course, I can't say tasted. I actually was drinking this time. <laughs> so Nebbiolo was, that good? was up. Yeah. Uh, and it was a lot. It was some, you know, cool things there. So, yeah. Nebbiolo. Um, <clears throat> some considered an alternative to Great Burgundy because the price can get a little crazy for Burgundy. Of course, I don't say that, but I'm probably biased. Wink, wink. Uh, Nebbiolo can be compared to Pinot Noir for some, um, for its ability to convey a real sense of place. And flavor-wise, think high acidity, intense tannins with some grip, flavors of cherry, rose, and tar. And over time, like a decade, aging can soften those tannins and um, a bit and integrate some acidity. Next up, Barolo, called the king of wine by some. It has a very big reputation, and the region has actually earned UNESCO World Heritage status. Mm. The Appalachian earned its DOCG status, and regulations dictate that Barolo must be aged a minimum of three years for release, five years for reserva. And then to take it a step further, only vineyards on southern-facing hills fall within the purview. Um, next, I had some Barbera as well. Um, it's one of Piedmont's most widely planted grapes. Barbera d'Alba and Barbera d'Asti, both DOCG, are some of the most well-known appellations in the Piedmont. Today, it grows around Italy and the world. It's a dark-skinned grape, produces wines with bright cherry flavors and tannins that are measurably softer and rounder than the Nebbiolo I mentioned before. And thanks to its high acidity, Barbera thrives in warmer climates. Um, uh, the Barbera d'Alba covers the Alba viticultural area from the town of Alba and nearby hills with some mm -hmm. overlap in Barolo and Barbaresco. The best wines, though, come from the hillside sites near Barolo. Now, mm -hmm. I mentioned Barbera d'Asti DOCG. Well, to go from Alba to Asti, we took an old school steam train. This was such a cool experience. I mean, like old school train station, blow an actual whistle. Ooh. We see the we see the guy shoveling coal into the engine, black smoke, oh. face, hands, neck from soot, <laughs> covered black. Like it was that part was cool. Then get on the train, very old school train, very regal though, not like old, dilapidated old. Yes. Old, like regal and royal, gilded, gold everywhere fine wood, everything shining. 
like mm-hmm. it's what I imagined for a train back in the day. How long did so, it take? Uh, maybe like 40 minutes because it also was not going slow. Now I'm used to the TGV and yes. now to get you there lightning fast. No, this I'm like, okay, um, I think the conductor is out back pushing this train with his hand. <laughs> <laughs> So like, basically, the they're very, right very, very close from each other. Yeah, they're not far. They're not far at all. But when we got to Asti, mm-hmm. I mean, I had to drink Moscato Dasti. Yeah. But they did it kind of in a fun way. They did some cocktails with it at a cocktail truck outside of a mansion. So there was that. And what kind of cocktail did you get? It was uh, the Moscato was mixed with like a ginger liqueur and mm-hmm. then a little bit of tonic. And then a lot of ice. And how was that? Oh, it was delicious. Yes, very refreshing. Mm. I had two. <laughs> Don't worry. Even if you had more, we, we will not you know, survey and. and <laughs> well, no, me having, the sec- me having the second one actually, um, and was talking to another lady that was on the trip. And we was like, oh, yeah, we'll have a second. And then we go to walk down the you know hill from the mansion to go back to the bus. And we see the bus driving off. And we're like, oh, no. What do we do now? How do we get out of here? <laughs> you go back to the truck and get some more of those cocktails, no? So we were thinking about that. Then we saw a couple of other people that were left behind. And then there was a guy who he had something to do with the mansion, worked there, something. This part I don't remember because two cocktails. <laughs> two cocktails. <yeah>. Two cocktails. <laughs> and uh, he gave us a ride because he was going to our dinner as well. So he gave us a ride over there. Oh, the excitement of uh, traveling. The excitement of traveling. Yep. So, yeah, the Asti part was the Moscato and then the Barbera. So how did you, if you, if you were to compare that to, to some of the French wines, because you were talking about, you know, the, the parallels between, you know, Burgundy and, 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 and those places, which one do you prefer? I'll have to say I prefer French wine because I feel like French wine, I can just drink that on its own. Um, if I just want to have like a nice little Aperol, maybe I have like some peanuts or some pretzels or something mm. like, like that. It's fine. But with Italian wine, I feel like I really need to have a meal. Oh, fair enough. Uh, just ran a quick poll concerning, uh, are you familiar with the wines of, of Alba and Asti? A little, uh, 70%, a lot, 15%, no, 15%. And would you be interested in trying them? About almost 90, 85% would be interested in trying them. Uh, let me share the results so they can have a look at that. Um, well, hopefully they are a little more familiar now. So they can say a little more. Yeah, yes, so we so. hear about them, but actually in, in terms of actually trying them or drinking them, there's 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 a majority that you know would like to try them. A lot of them don't make it out of Italy. They keep um, some of their wines to themselves. I mean, they they are delicious, so I get it. But, yeah. yeah. So you've been you've been to to Alba and Asti. You've been to Verona. Uh, you tend to be a lot of a lot of uh, the time in, in in Italy these days. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. So for next year, I've put Spain in my mind, and I'm gonna um, work on manifesting that so that I can go to Spain a lot next year. So right. nice. Yeah, we'll follow up with that. So yeah. now. The famous wine minute. So last year, you 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 had some New Year's resolution. You know things you wanted to do, uh, and you said this is this is exactly what I'm going to do this year, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Now we are at the end of the year and uh, we want to take a bit of stock on what happened between what you wanted to do and what you actually did. Yes. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, here we go. So I said I was going to do three things. First thing, take a trip, go somewhere to some other wine regions to visit because I go to Champagne a lot because that's work, but I've been all over the place. Bordeaux a few times, Avignon, Chateauneuf-de-Pop, Provence to visit Chateau d'Esclante, Tracasse de Larzac, Saint-Chinian in France, then Alba Barona, Bardolino in Italy, and then the summer I was in South Africa. Second, yeah. read a book. Read a wine book. Oh, yes, and Vaughn too, of course. Read a <laughs> wine book. I didn't do great with this one, so not a real book. I've read a bunch of white papers and articles for the wine classes I teach, though, so like academic stuff and textbooks, so not very exciting. Coptic. Yes. Next, drink something sparkling that's not champagne. This kind of was like, give me, like, clearly I was going to do this. Various Cremants, Francia Corda, um, some, a bunch of Proseccos, and then had a Cap Classique in South Africa. Next month, three new solutions. Resolutions. Yes. Okay, you got it? Two got and it. a half, two and three quarters, yeah. let's say. You got that? Good, good, good. You got to prepare now the New Year's resolution for 2023, but yeah, yeah, we'll keep them for January, these yeah. ones. Uh, what are your thumbs up and thumbs down? Thumbs up? I had a good year. I went a lot of places and drank a lot of cool things, met a lot of good people. Um, and I see Katerina in here. Uh, got to see her a couple of times this year. So that was fun. Um, yeah, it was a good year. That's my thumbs up. Thumbs down? If any. Thumbs down. Um, I guess my thumbs, the only thumbs down would be I'm not going home for Christmas. Uh, but I mean, I'm come to terms with that. But yeah, I won't be going home to Chicago uh, for Christmas to be with my family. So yeah, that's kind of a thumbs down. Yeah, for next time. Maybe Tanisha, thank you very much. And we'll see you, you in 2023. And now last but not least, have a drink with me with our special guest, Jean Anson. To be or not to be. <laughs> to free or not to free. To crawl or not to crawl. Fuck all those perfect people. Uh, fuck all those perfect people. Chip Taylor and the new Ukrainians, uh, as usual, are <laughs> today. Most of the today's soundtrack is from a selection suggested by our special guest, Jane Anson, and it will be available as a Spotify playlist. Is there a uh, subliminal message with this song or something like that? <laughs> that song, I love that song, but one of the reasons is I've got two teenage daughters. One's 14 and one's 19. And I think that is a massively important message for young people, <laughs> for all of us, like all the perfect people. There aren't any, basically. <laughs> Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. It's such a pleasure to welcome you to the Wine Hour. Um, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> I have a hot chocolate here, actually. Uh, chocolate is nice. Uh, so as I said, if the audience has any questions, you can raise your hand and we'll put you uh, either on audio or video if you are ready. Now, in your path, uh, you've been uh, a correspondent for Decanter in Bordeaux since 2003. And there are many things before that. You traveled a lot. Uh, you went to Tokyo, you went to Hong Kong, you went to so many different places. And then as usually in our lives, there's 
some special people that you know show up at one point or another that kind of makes big impression on us. We all have somehow those kind of persons. What about Jabulani Nshangase? I hope I pronounce it properly. Great job. Yeah, he, and you know, weirdly, just today, I saw that Spear Winery had won, um, I think the drinks business gave it um, the green award for the for the winery that's done, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, mm-hmm. but something about social um, giving back to, you know, things. And it was at Spear that I met Jabulani. So it's weird that that came up today. Um, I, yeah, quite often think if I hadn't met him in Spear that day, it was 1996, I think it's unlikely that I would be writing about wine today. It really was mm. that much of a really a, a kind of a fateful meeting where I only saw him that one day and then I met him again f- 10 years, 15 years later in New York by just some one of those crazy coincidences. Mm. But um, it really just kind of turned something in my mind of the fact that wine was such a fascinating subject that could bring together so many different parts of life and as a writer so I was a journalist before mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be a writer since I was seven and it's, I've never really thought about doing anything else and it didn't have to be about wine by any stretch of the imagination but that meeting made me kind of see that wine would be somewhere that as a writer I could I could go and I could find a path. Was there something specific in your conversation with him? I think it was the fact that I was talking to him as a journalist, not as a wine mm. journalist at all. And I was interested about the fact that he'd left South Africa during apartheid, had, had been living in New York, and then came back to kind of build the the new South Africa as it was really, really seen at the time. And I interviewed him. And then I went to a township just outside of Cape Town. And I met a, a a, a guy who was probably a similar age but who hadn't ever left South Africa and who clearly had far less economic prospects I don't know what he's doing now but it was those two meetings in they were like two days apart I think just had a very profound influence on me thinking about um, South Africa at that time and then I went back and properly interviewed Jebulani. And yeah, I think it just made me see that in wine, you have the beauty of being in the the Cape Winelands. I mean, Tanisha was saying she was there this summer, you know, it is just so stunning. But but all around it was quite difficult um, political, economic backgrounds and um, and the history of South Africa. I think they just I just realized that wine would bring all of those different things together as well as tasting really delicious and, you know, giving a, ha- having just a, a sense, a sensory thing to write about as well. So, you know, it was, it was a, definitely a big moment in my life. Yeah. What is interesting is that Ray, Ray Isle was a writer before going into the world of wine as well. And it seems that there's a, there's an approach to the writing itself when you come not from that world and you, know, you haven't grown up as a, as a winemaker or from a winemaker family, but you come as a writer because there are interests or there's angles that you're trying to look at that may be different that someone has lived, you know, in, in the, in, in that, in that industry for a long time. And this is quite interesting. Then you, you work with the canter. Um, how did you approach your, your, your writing and, once you started to be in the world of wine, did you change the way you approached the writing, the kind of questions you were asking, or you always liked that angle of you know, from the outsider? 
I think I've probably always bugged most winemakers by asking lots of questions. <laughs> I, I think as, if you come from a journalist background, you can't help but ask lots of questions. And to be a good writer in anything, you've got to be interested in people and you've got to keep, don't be afraid to say when you don't understand something. And I think even now, every time I go to a winery, there'll be a little something that I didn't quite get before, or it makes more sense when it's put into a different kind of a context. And so, no, I think that background of being a journalist has been enormously helpful all the way through and continues to be. And in fact, that was really how I got decanter. Like when I moved to Bordeaux in 2003, I really just knocked on Decanter's door. I went back down to, to London. They were in Fulham at the time in this tiny, tiny little office where you walked up these kind of rickety old steps to get up to the top. And um, and I was met there by a wonderful guy called Adam Lechmere, who's no silly journalist, doesn't work with Decanter now. But but um, I basically said, I'm in Bordeaux. I'm a journalist. Do you do you need any anything? And he said, Oh yeah, great. We um. We need somebody who's prepared to get their hands dirty and get the story as opposed to be wanting to taste wine all the time. And that was a brilliant way in for me because that's, you know, that was what I knew how to do. So I, for the first really five years when I was here, I was just learning about how Bordeaux worked by writing news stories. It was a very, very helpful thing to do. And then later started um, taking the WSET and doing um working at the doing doing an institute of Enology here in bordeaux and kind of getting to know more about the actual wine side the when you started how welcome were you <laughs> in that world so here comes the uh, the british lady uh okay with the canter but uh she's gonna ask me uh, she's asking some some kind of you know strange questions <laughs> <laughs> i think i was really lucky to be so to know so little about the wine world that i was that I wasn't um, overawed, I think, by by realizing that here I was in Bordeaux with all of these people like Stephen Spurrier and, um, you know, um, Broadbent and all of these real legends. But luckily, I didn't really realize that they were legends. So I didn't feel so overawed by them <laughs> when I first met them. I think that was helpful. Yes. And the, and, and the, the local producer, the winemakers, how were their, how did they receive you? How did they welcome you? Uh, um, I think that the Bordelais get a reputation for being um, quite closed. Um, I didn't really find that to be the case, but I wasn't um, trying, I think, to be, I didn't, I didn't want to be admitted into the inner circle. I think what you said before, that the fact that I can feel like I'm a little bit outside of that looking in is helpful for my job. So I don't think I'm, I minded, but it is certainly true that having the, the decanter There's a kind of bit like the key to the kingdom when you have the name decanter behind you. I'm sure they were probably more welcoming to me than maybe they would have been otherwise. But yeah, I've always found them. Um, I've, I've always found that they they let you in enough to be able to do your job, which is all that which is what you need. Yes, and at the beginning, were there special people, specific people yeah. that were more forthcoming and really yes. were there to support you and help you and to get your yes, get you would, inside, basically. I would say that those people still I feel enormously grateful to and Jean-Michel Cars was one of them so the owner of Lynch Barge now he's retired it's his son who, who runs Lynch Barge but he was from the very first time I met him took me seriously even though I really did know nothing about wine really when I moved to Bordeaux but just took me seriously and pointed me in the right direction of what I should be reading and all that but in a very non 
you know, n- not at all making me feel like I didn't know anything, mm-hmm. just in a very welcoming way. So he was amazing. Um, there's a, a guy called Denis de Bordia, who sadly is, is, has died now, God, probably now five or six years ago. But he was the closest thing I would say that I had to a mentor in Bordeaux mm-hmm. where he was really helpful in, in how you taste and how, and, and if I had any questions about um, the technical side, he would always be on the other end of the phone and and take those calls. And then eventually he became one of my professors at the Institute of Enology mm-hmm. when I did the duad, the tasting mm-hmm. um, year-long tasting diploma and so he had an enormous impact on me. and still today I don't think there's a week that goes by when I don't think I wish I could call Denny and ask him some something so he was he was very important to me and then after a long career with decanter you decided to go on your own yeah it's exciting so almost <laughs> a year ago so that is a definite that this year has been amazing I was with decanter for Yeah, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I was the official Bordeaux correspondent for about the last seven of those of those years, maybe six or seven of those years. And it was a wonderful job. There's no question about it. It was a, you know, it's a great job to have. But I just got to the point when I wanted to, I wanted to to see what else I could do. I'd written, by that point, I'd written six books about Bordeaux and I'd mm. just done that huge inside Bordeaux, that real like 800 page we'll door stepper <laughs> of a book, we'll talk about that. <laughs> which, which was wonderful, but it really gave me a, a, a deeper insight into how Bordeaux worked. Like any book, the best way to learn about anything is to write about it. And mm-hmm. that book was very, really opened even more in my mind of how Bordeaux works. And I just started thinking, there was an opportunity to do a site which which did for Bordeaux what wonderful websites do for Burgundy. You have three or four mm-hmm. sites which are really focused on Burgundy. And there wasn't one about Bordeaux, certainly not from a, a, a wine critic who's writing regularly and who's writing in the English language. And it seemed like I was well-placed to do it because I was based here. And, you know, I just went for it. I just decided I was going to do it. And I launched officially last October. So I've just really finished my first full year. And it's been really the best year professionally of my life. I've, I've loved it. It's been wonderful. Okay. We're going to talk about that after a musical break. And uh, this is your, your, your second uh, selection. Change 
in your uh, music selection uh, you've chosen why do you only call me when you're high from the arctic monkeys i love them <laughs> they're, they're so brilliant why have you chosen that song um i went to university in sheffield my my um, undergraduate studies which is where the arctic monkeys are from so or from oh. yorkshire so i love the accent so much and i love that they just think they're they're brilliant in fact the other song that you picked the um the blue monday i was i lived in manchester from the age of 13 to 18 so my whole teenage years was in manchester couldn't be a better place in the world to be a teenager than manchester so those two songs that you picked for the video are i'm i'm, I'm very, very happy you chose them both okay there, there was it was it wasn't it wasn't you know planned from before i, I just felt it I... <laughs> So you left Decanter to start JaneAnson.com. Yes. Big step. Is, is that also potentially a way because you, you felt you would have more freedom to write about more things that you wanted to express more things? Actually, not just about writing more things. It was more about how to run the business myself and to, and to make my professional life be about more than just writing tasting notes. I think that mm -hmm. was really important for me. So like small things like from the beginning doing the 1% for the planet. So mm -hmm. you know, doing 1% of my turnover that goes to environmental causes. This week, I've just picked my first charity that I'm working with, which is a ocean, like ocean cleanup around the, um, around Bordeaux, around the Atlantic coast around here, which has been wonderful. Um, but also things like the mental week. So that was something which I mean, I, I could have done it with decanter, mm -hmm. but it's different when you're in that rhythm of just doing the, The, the work that you have to do for a for somebody else it, it I, I really found that by stopping and starting my own site I could reimagine from the beginning how I spend my year and so that um idea of doing the mentor week which I did with a, a friend here mm -hmm. and we 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 kind of opened up applications for any young people from all over the world who would maybe were starting out in wine but hadn't maybe been established for long enough and coming to Bordeaux might have been difficult for them for whatever reason. Um, and it was never about making ambassadors for Bordeaux, but it's something that I have seen in my career that when you know a bit about Bordeaux, you're taken seriously in the wine world. It's like this kind of shortcut that people don't tell you about, that people assume you have a far greater knowledge if that knowledge is about Bordeaux. And so I wanted to do something to And we talked about you know, Bordeaux can be closed and it's difficult and can be seen as being very kind of snobby. And I, I wanted to do something where Bordeaux would, would actually offer a, 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 whatever the word is, a jumping off point for people's careers. And it was just the most wonderful, rewarding week I could ever imagine. We got um, sponsors to bring people over. Mm -hmm. So there was no cost for the guys who came. Um, and we had, um, and for Air France, did one of the... Um, the flights, uh, Club Divin, which is an mm -hmm. NFT club, they did another one, um, the Gerard Bassett Foundation mm -hmm. um, also. So we, yeah, so we got these um, sponsors and brought them over and put them up for a week. It was wonderful. We had something like 100 people applied. It was the first year. Um, we, could, we took seven. We were going to take six, but it was impossible to narrow them down. So we had seven in the end. And we had somebody from Puerto Rico, somebody from India, some, two people from South Africa, somebody mm -hmm. from Nigeria. Um, somebody from London, somebody from Switzerland. So we, we kind of mixed it up mm -hmm. as well with some people from Europe as well. But it was just a wonderful week. There seems to be that the city is growing more and more on you and we want to give back more and more to it. 
And within that new role with GeneAnson.com, you are able to manage that giving back the way you want to. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, yeah, it's been very rewarding. And then at the same time to be able to write about the wines of Bordeaux and the wines that are on the Place de Bordeaux, because there's so many now, there's so many great icon wines of the world that are sold through here. So there's plenty to keep me busy. It's, it's been a, it's been a great year. Yeah. There's something else also when you were writing inside Bordeaux, if I understand correctly, there was, it was also to, to, to try to remove some of the misconception people would have about Bordeaux and the region. Um, there's some 6,000 estates, something like that. Uh, so there's many, many, it's just, they're not just the big names that we all hear about, but there's many smaller ones and there's a lot of diversity. And there was something that actually struck me, uh, without going too much into the technical aspect. When you talk about Bordeaux, you don't really talk about the terroir and all the conversation I've had with all the people from all across the world, everyone says the terroir is the most important thing. <laughs> you have to think about it. But when it comes to Bordeaux, people are not talking about terroir. They were talking about, you know, the 1855 uh, uh, Grand Cru, et cetera, the, uh, the classement. And, uh, and that was it. Uh, so that, that, that was a bit of a surprise. I know. And that's something that I feel, I mean, I, I actually can't quite believe it when I look back. But I honestly think that I did move the conversation along by including that as such a big part of Inside Bordeaux. And it was because the longer I was here, the more frustrated I became with exactly what you're saying, that even the chateaus themselves would talk about what their wines were like, but they put it in the context of their history more than really why they were tasting the way they were. And I think, again, it goes back to I'm a journalist. I'm, I want to mm. understand why things work and, and how they work. And so I just became more and more interested in the, in the terroir of Bordeaux. And when I was doing the duet, I had one class with a guy called Kees van Leeuwen. He's a professor who's a, from, from the, the, the Netherlands, who's here and who's a terroir expert. And his lecture was like a light bulb going off in my head because it was so clear the way he talked about it. And I just knew, I just knew at that moment that I had to write something on a, on a deeper level about the terror of Bordeaux. And so when I started doing a book inside Bordeaux, right from the beginning, I knew that was going to be a key part of it. And one of the reasons is because what's the way to get into 6,000 estates? How do you even begin mm -hmm. to know? I covered maybe 800 properties in inside Bordeaux, but how do you know beyond the classified which ones to go to? start looking at the terroir and you realize just how fascinating and complex Bordeaux is and you then start to truly understand why left bank is so different from right bank and why Poyac is so different from Santamillion and why actually there's no such thing as Santamillion there are three very distinct types of terroir within it and for you as a consumer to be empowered to realize you know how do I spend twenty dollars and get a good wine that maybe it's not going to be as good as 600 but but there's something special there Going in through the terroir gives you this kind of the keys, again, this idea of keys to the kingdom, this idea of going behind the myths and behind the history. And I found it was a, a much more modern way of looking at Bordeaux. And it was also wonderful because I got to work with um, Kays Van Leeuwen, who was like my scientific advisor. Mm. And he did new maps for the book, which hadn't been, um, some of them had never been published before. Some of them he Oof. did especially for the book. And we did this kind of Indiana Jones trail of finding all of the different maps that may have been done over the years that hadn't been brought up to date. So we got them and then he kind of brought them up to date. So, I, yeah, I, I, I think 
it was really a useful and interesting exercise and it certainly enhanced my understanding of Bordeaux but that was a chapter which was so hard I wrote and rewrote and rewrote to try and make it accessible for normal (laughs) non-scientists like myself and at every point I tried to say okay if that's the kind of terroir it is what does that mean to us drinking it well how do you translate that to what a wine tastes like in the glass and that's what I kept on thinking at at every moment so yes it was a very um rewarding thing to do it took you three years to write it yes plus the 15 years before that (laughs) yes yes. (laughs) obviously obviously it's a long time yeah it was a long time and I was lucky to have um publishers who were happy to wait and let me you know let me write it at the pace that I needed to and to be able to go as, as deep as possible. And in fact, I've been something else that's happened this year is that um, I've now got back the rights to Inside Bordeaux. So I now am distributing. I'm still working with my with my wonderful publishers. I'll still be there. Mm-hmm. But I have the rights back to it, which means that for my website, that's a whole extra layer, which I'll be developing in 2023. So by subscribing to the website, you'll have much greater access to what, ha- what there is in the book mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah, so that's, that's exciting for next year. Yes. Now that you've been for so long in Bordeaux, how can you keep your outsider point of view? Um, my, my husband's <laughs> English as well. So we have our little, <laughs> little island of, of English or English speaking anyway at in, in the, the house. And I think... I don't, I don't think it will ever leave me the fact that I have a journalist point of view and you it's very, very natural to be oh, slightly yeah. cynical about what's happening and to <laughs> keep, on, keep on asking those questions. If I don't ask questions, that's when I'm in trouble. Plans for 2023? A new so, book? Would you, would, you, would, you, would you write a new book that takes so Because they take long. They're not easy. There are things that you can do just overnight. So no, such an right. endeavor, yeah. is it something that you... So so at the moment, I've been translating Jean-Michel Caz's memoirs. So he Mm -hmm. wrote, he published his biography in French, and I've translated for him the English version, which again, you're right, I I shouldn't have taken it on because it's a lot of time, but I just love him. And I wanted to be the person who would translate it. So I just did it. Um, I, I think that I've, because I love writing books and I never feel like I'm completely happy unless I've got some book on the go. So I'm sure I will, but you're right. The last year has been so focused on getting, getting the the website up and up and running and with Inside Bordeaux now, because I have the rights back, I'll also be doing an ebook. There'll be, you know, there'll be other mm-hmm. things connected to Inside Bordeaux. Yeah. Because now that you're running your own business, it's not just about writing. It's about managing. It's about, no, yeah, there's yeah. all I mean, the different it's been things a about real it. Learning curve, for sure. For sure. And you realize you, you cannot know everything. You have to ask for help. You have to have people that you can rely on and that you can you know, go to. That's been a, a, a wonderful thing. In fact, the, the idea of building a team and giving people um, work and all the rest of it, I've, I've really enjoyed that part of it. But definitely that's a slightly overwhelming at times and something I need to get better at in 2023 is how to sustain this incredible growth because it happened quite quickly how well people kind of, you know, took to the site and getting subscribers. And that's been amazing. But how do I keep sustaining that? That's one of the challenges for me for 2023. Were you surprised by the success? I think you're always a little nervous when you start any project, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't know how it would be received, but um, I was, I didn't take outside investors. So I, so I, had, I, I decided to 
to put my own money into it because I wanted to be able to make those decisions like the 1% for the planet and the mental week and things that maybe from the outside didn't look like such a smart thing to do. Very wise choice. (laughs) I hope so. Very, Um, very wise choice. (laughs) Yeah, so so that's been amazing. It it didn't take long before I knew it was going to work. So that was reassuring. But yes, but building it up, that's a whole different thing. And I'm, 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 you know, I, I need to keep on asking for help, keep on understanding how do I grow the business. Yes. Uh, we're fortunately getting close to the end of the conversation. But before that, I have one question before we go to the people questionnaire. If you were to look back at yourself age 20, what would you tell yourself? Hmm. Okay, so something that I believe is been true throughout my life and I would say to my 20 year old self believe this is that the harder you work the luckier you get and so I think you know things don't just happen we all have opportunities but we have to know when to take them and we have to know to work hard and not be an asshole you know try and be a good (laughs) person to work with and to and to to, to that that's something I would be sure to let my 20 20 year old self know wonderful so to conclude, uh, as always, we're going to finish with the people questionnaire. So it's the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, are you ready? I hate this, but yes, I'm ready. <laughs> okay, we, we're going to try to make it as little painful as possible. Painless, but it's okay. So what is your favorite word? Okay, straight away, that's so hard. What I decided to say was any word that said in a Yorkshire accent, like with the Arctic monkeys, I love the Yorkshire accent. So I think it's more about the accent for me than the word. Okay, can you just give me one to, to hear the accent? Oh, no, I can't. We'll have to, we'll have to play the um, Arctic monkeys again to have them. Um, it's the way that Alex speaks, that's how. Okay, so what's your least favorite word? Okay, so that's easier. I'd straight away, it would be Brexit. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Brexit completely destroyed so many things, yeah. but so much harder living in France post-Brexit. So yeah, that's an easy, easy, my least favorite word. Yes. Your favorite virtue? Oh gosh, being open-minded, I think. Uh, your favorite quality in a man? I would say the same for both things, and it would be a sense of humor. Don't take yourself too seriously, man or woman. Okay, so quality in a woman done uh what wine would you use to describe yourself oh my god honestly you said wine dish or ingredient so i'm so gonna I, okay I, so I, yeah <laughs> choose because it's too it's that's too hard i think what i decided to say instead i don't know what this says about me was but favorite food was what i went for instead of what how to describe myself and yeah. maybe it says something about myself because i would say I like cooking food that's simple, but takes a long time. So it's almost like I work so hard and I'm busy. So I love um, making things which you have to slow down and really you know, take a long time. So I love making gingerbread. I love cooking soups. I love doing things which which you have to do kind of slowly and almost meditatively. If that's yeah, I was going to say it sounds so, like meditation. Yeah. yeah. So so I think so. So we, we, let's say gingerbread then would be the <laughs> would be the food. What's your favorite smell or aroma? Oh, gosh. Gingerbread, one of them. Um, wood, you know, when you're making a fire. I absolutely love the smell of the fire the next day as well when it's slightly cold mm. ash. And that's mm. actually one of the things that I quite like finding in wine as well. Like I love an old Saint Julien because it will have that gorgeous cold ash smell to it, which, which I'm, I'm a big fan of. Very earthy. <laughs> uh, what sound or noise do you love? Oh, sound of 
Oh, oh gosh, right. Well, also I had here a, a crackling fire, or I like this this one, a cup of tea being poured out of a real teapot. And when somebody you know lifts up the tea, and you can hear that tea going oh. into, into the into a proper china mug. I love that. English lady. <laughs> yeah. What sound noise do you hate? Oh God! Well, since since COVID, I think I can speak for most people. The sound of somebody coughing when you're in an enclosed environment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think for the rest of all of our lives, that will have been <laughs> that will be a trigger for us now. In any language, what's your favorite curse word? God, it's so easy. Surely it's got to be fuck. Is there any better word in the English language than F-U-C-K? Yeah, I think this is universal. <laughs> <laughs> what plant or animal would you like to be reincarnated in? I don't actually know what that even means, but I'm going to say a vine because vines are very resilient. They can grow, you know, pretty much anywhere, and but they tend to be in very, very beautiful parts of the world. Oh, nice. And last question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you oh arrive God, at the pearly gates? <laughs> How do you answer that question? Um, okay, have you brought a corkscrew? Oh, nice. Jane Anson, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> So this concludes the wine hour for today. Uh, thank you for listening. You have a wonderful holiday season and a great new year. We see you all in 2023. Until then, drink in moderation, be well and safe, faith always. And we leave you with uh, Only Love Can Break Your Heart by Neil Young. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting to all thanks, of you. Thanks. Thanks. Have a great holiday. <laughs> thank you. Wonderful music selection. Oh, so nice hearing them. I loved, love it. Thank loved you. It. Loved it. Loved it. Thank you, everyone. Be well for the holiday season. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, uh, yeah, music. I love it. Yeah, just like. <laughs> A bientôt. Merci beaucoup. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Merci, Nicole, d'être venue. Thanks, everyone. Thank Jeremy. Thank Geneviève. Thanks, Philip. Evelyn, Beth, thanks. Maricelli, thank you, Martin. Have a beautiful holiday season. Thanks. Bye-bye, everyone.